and the rise of uh, the advertising and marketing industry, um, which is a, a really crucial element of the kind of um, messed up economy uh, that we have, uh, creating all sorts of artificial uh, desires and pseudo uh, needs, which, uh, which in, the, in the case of uh, the internet and the way that social media works, are encouraging us to have shorter and shorter uh, time horizons. You know, it's all about the, the, next, uh, the next click and the next like and the next little dopamine buzz. If So welcome to another episode of Chatter. Today, I'm talking to Rupert Reed, uh, author, uh, former spokesperson for Extinction Rebellion, and now author of the brand new book, Parents for a Future. Welcome to the show. Good to be here, Josh. Thank you. No problem. Yeah, thanks for agreeing to chat to me. It's a pleasure. I, I first discovered Extinction Rebellion like properly would have been the start of last year um, around sort of quarantine at the start of the start of the lockdowns. And I read your, the Extinction Rebellion handbook. So it's, mm. uh, it's, it's funny because the, the, there's a great, there's a great part in uh, Naomi Klein's book, This Changes Everything, where she talks about the, the only possibility for uh, some form of reform or some sort of like major change being from some spontaneous small outbreak coming. And then like a year later, up popped uh, Extinction Rebellion. And I was like, wow, yeah. this is a little bit, little bit perfect. Um, yeah. I don't know if they were, like I assume quite a few of them had probably read her book. Um, it was a thing that really like um, terrified and, and inspired me. But uh, where did you first hear about Extinction Rebellion? Yeah, so my story is a little bit uh, similar. Uh, around uh, 2017, um, I was getting um, very, very disconsolate about the climate and ecological situation. Uh, I just didn't really know what to do. And I was carrying on doing the same old things that I'd been doing, um, you know, which were worthwhile. Um, so in this particular, on the particular day in question that's on my mind here, um, I was leafleting for the, the Green Party uh, and as I was going down the street, putting leaflets through doors uh, and observing the, the front gardens and observing the, the use of weed killer and observing the rubbish and observing, you know, one, one garden after another, I found something in each of them to, to uh, bring me down. And these words popped into my head, this civilization is finished. Um, and uh, I then started writing uh, a piece, uh, which was unlike anything I'd ever written before because it was far more uh, pessimistic, uh, i.e. realistic about our situation. Um, and that eventually became this little book, The Civilization is Finished, um, which has made uh, quite a hit. Um, but the thing was, when I was writing that book, I didn't really have a positive way of going forward. I didn't know what we could actually do that would actually be enough to change the situation. So I was giving these talks with titles like This Civilization is Finished, and they were having an incredible resonance, more than anything I'd ever done before. People were just really, really resonating with the truth-telling quality of, uh, of what I was doing and saying, this is what we need to hear. And students saying to me things like, this feels like the first time that any adult, any teacher has ever spoken directly and authentically to me about any of this stuff and so on. 
but I was still pretty disconsolate because I just I didn't see how we were going to get out of this. And then in August, September 2018, three people independently within a very short space of time said to me, there's this new video that just appeared on YouTube from a, 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 a tiny group calling themselves Extinction Rebellion. I think you need to watch it, Rupert, because they're kind of saying the same thing as you. So I watched the, uh, the, the famous Gail Bradbrook um, Heading for Extinction and What to Do About It talk. I was one of the first people to watch it on, the, on, uh, on YouTube. Um, uh, and I thought, wow, this is amazing. Yeah, these people have a similar analysis to me, but they've got a plan. Uh, they've got a plan for mass nonviolent direct action to, to deal with it. That day, I managed to track down Gail and phoned her up and had a long um, call for, with her, which was um, a wonderful dialogue uh, that we had. And by the end of the call, I was convinced that I was going to get heavily involved in Extinction Rebellion, which I did. Uh, and so threw myself in and was very involved in organizing the letter that was published in The Guardian that was the sort of first announcement through the mainstream press about XR's existence. And I helped launch um, XR by um, uh, co-emceeing the events at um, Parliament Square, which was the first real public action that XR did on October the 31st of 2018. And I um, uh, introduced, introduced Caroline Lucas from who she was speaking in the middle of the street, which we had occupied, you know, on a, on a soapbox. And I eulogized Greta Thunberg, who was there. It was the first time I met her. And yeah, I was then very heavily involved for the, uh, the, next, um, uh, the next couple of years. One of the themes that, that, that is frequently raised um, by, by, by XR and, and is very much uh, what your, your book is about uh, is, is our, our responsibility as, as, as custodians of the earth, essentially, as, as, as it's something that we, we don't really possess, we just kind of occupy um, in the in the in the least ironic use of that word, um, for for the time that we're here, and then it's 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 gifted to to the next generation um, and the generation after that, and that and that and beyond, um, and and that that kind of idea, I feel like I was actually talking about this last night. Um, there's a there's an idea that that was raised by by Graham Hancock, and he believes that the Amazon rainforest wasn't like a totally naturally occurring thing. He believes it was it was planted and cultivated by by like the ancient civilization that he he does a lot of research on um due to the 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 different like tree types and the way that they they're arranged and where you find certain ones he he believes that it was yeah it was like planted and cultivated by humans and like the person i was talking to about it was like there's no way humans would be have that much foresight and that much patience in order to create something like and, and and to like cultivate and, and grow something so huge and vast and beautiful that they wouldn't that she didn't even believe that humans could have that kind of care over that many generations in order to do something like that and it's definitely yeah. something that's very hard to imagine in our, in our modern society like why do you think that is well why is it that we're so thoroughly short-termist these days it's a great question it's a really important question and I don't know about the Amazon, but there certainly are examples from the past of kinds of long-term projects, agricultural projects and other projects that we find really hard to imagine or to implement today. Um, an example I like to cite is uh, cathedrals. 
uh, and people talk about cathedral thinking. We need cathedral thinking. Why cathedrals? Because some of the great Gothic cathedrals, they took 100 years or so to build, now, which was way longer than the way longer than the average lifetime in those days. So you've got to imagine somebody uh, born on the edge of a cathedral city, um, what is now Cathedral City, and they see this, this sort of like, you know, 10 meter high kind of part of the cathedral has been built. And they die after, you know, a, a potentially a good and happy life. And the cathedral's nearly funny, nearly finished, you know. That's long-term uh, thinking. And of course, the, the reason why we use this example is that these cathedrals are absolutely magnificent uh, objects. Um, and they're sacred, they're held sacred uh, still by, by many people. Well, the cathedrals, the temples of, uh, of nature, they need to be held sacred in the same kind of way. And yes, sometimes um, human beings can do a good job of helping to, to steward them. Um, often uh, they just need, we just need to leave them alone. But yeah, why have we lost this? I think it's got uh, a lot to do with the changes in our um, political economy over the last few centuries. The rise of individualism, which is a very destructive dogma that says basically, me, 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 um, forget about the collective, forget about the community, forget about the greater good. Uh, and the rise of uh, the advertising and marketing industry, um, which is a, a really crucial element of the kind of um, messed up economy uh, that we have, uh, creating all sorts of artificial uh, desires and pseudo uh, needs, which, uh, which in the, in the case of uh, the internet and the way that social media works, are encouraging us to have shorter and shorter uh, time horizons. You know, it's all about the, the, next, uh, the next click and the next like and the next little dopamine buzz. If people haven't seen it, I really recommend the film, uh, The Social Dilemma on Netflix, which is very good on analyzing how this works. Um, so we've entered into a situation where we have uh, an economy which systematically encourages short-termism and discourages long-termism. There are many other aspects of the economy which I could talk about which point in the same direction uh, as this. And so what we need to do, and this is a lot of what this book, uh, Parents for a Future, my new book, is about, what we need to do is find ways of recovering that long-termism. And I think it's possible, provided we really take seriously what we all claim to take so seriously and centrally in our lives, which is our care for the next generation, specifically our love for our children. Mm. I mean, it's interesting you mentioned individualism there versus like uh, the idea of, of supporting or like working for a, a coll the collective. It's something I've been kind of wrestling with a little bit. Like I, I used to believe that the only way to deal with, with, with climate change was some sort of like monstrous top-down package. And the more I've read about how people have been trying to get this to happen for like 20, 30, 40 years, the less convinced I've become that that's the way forward. Um, I, I, I have this perhaps like a misguided belief that, like it, that that some one of the ways to the really like help deal with it is is to focus on and it's a kind of a, like a stoic idea almost on uh, to focus on what we can personally control and uh, as much as uh, I, like I'm a huge fan of of the work that XR have done I find that 
like almost the most gratifying thing can be to try and like, just like, especially during the pandemic, it was, it was uh, during lockdowns. I was thinking mostly about like, okay, how can I, can, how can I improve my situation in, in terms of climate change and, and like my impact upon the environment in my own like little world, like literally in my back garden. And, and I've been, I've been kind of thinking about whether it's, it, it's, naive to believe that like by sorting like your personal like self out and trying to inspire other people to do the same that you can get this like ripple effect that goes out from like from you to 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 other people and i mean i've watched it happen in in a few different spheres and not necessarily like in in to do with climate change but like in terms of deleting social media apps off of off my phone like i managed to convince quite a few friends to do that and they've all been super happy with it and um, which is really cool or in terms of like trying to grow some of my uh, my own food like a, a friend of mine started like growing avocado trees from the avocado seeds that he got um and he he he, he inspired both uh, myself and a couple other friends to like start trying to grow stuff of our own and i feel like that's potentially like one of the best ways in which to 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 try and at least do something at the moment when when uh, protest and and stuff is is a little more difficult um i mean do you think i'm being totally naive <laughs> uh i think what you said is all good but what i think is that yes you are being you're being naive if you think that's going to be enough and that's the question that everyone has to ask themselves honestly. Is what we're doing, is what we're planning, whatever, is it enough? Is it enough to change the course of history? It's nothing less than what we have to try to do uh, now. So it seems to me that what you set up there, Josh, was a bit of a sort of false opposition. You said you used to think it was all about top down. And now you think it's all about kind of um, uh, ground up individual action. Uh, I would say top down matters. Uh, ground up individual bottom up uh, matters but what really matters and where the difference is really going to be made is in the middle and what i mean by that is we have to do stuff together but we don't have to do it all through uh, global uh, conferences of world uh, leaders uh, we can do it for example crucially by building community uh, and that's one of the things that uh, i'm focusing on quite a lot at the moment it, it features towards the end of my book especially um, under the heading of transformative adaptation. We have to adapt to the climate damage that is tragically inevitably here and coming now. Uh, but we have to do so in a way that is transformative. We have to try to transform uh, our systems. And yes, yeah, some of that will happen through a bottom-up ripple effect. And some of that will happen through top-down government action. But if it's really going to work, the stage we're at now, an awful lot of it is going to have to come through communities, uh, localities, groups of, of people, neighborhoods, et cetera, organizing and reorganizing themselves. And one of the reasons why this is so crucial and, and makes such sense now is because we can no longer guarantee that governments are gonna see uh, a way through what's coming for us. And in fact, it looks very unlikely that they will, especially in countries like this one and in countries like the USA, where the government has been proven so categorically and catastrophically inadequate in the face of the, the COVID uh, pandemic. Uh, and it's gonna be even worse uh, when, uh, when climate uh, uh, damage really, really hits. People sometimes say, oh, well, the rich countries are gonna be fine when, uh, when the climate crisis really hits. It's the poor who are gonna suffer the most. And of course, the poor around the world are incredibly vulnerable and many of them are on the front lines and are already suffering horribly. But it's actually 
arrogance and stupidity to assume that the rich countries are going to be okay. And in some ways, the rich countries could be more fragile. They've got less strong communities. They've got in many ways less resilience. They've got more complex systems. You, you just have to look at the unbelievable state failures of countries like the US and the UK during COVID to see that we can have no confidence that our governments are going to save us when it comes to, to the mega emergencies and disasters uh, that are coming uh, uh, tragically in the next uh, decade or two. So I say it's high time partly for that reason um, for communities to, to organize themselves um, strongly uh, because they cannot rely, they cannot outsource this any longer. Governments, politicians are not going to ride to the rescue. We should, of course, try to influence them and make them as good as, as possible. But they're not going to be, they're not going to be enough. Top down is not enough. Bottom up is not enough. We need to do it together uh, as communities. That's the way we're really going to stand a chance of transforming the way we need to transforming. It's the kind of thing that the uh, Transition Towns movement has been talking about and doing uh, for years. Um, but there's also a contribution being made by the kind of um, consciousness that's being raised by, uh, by groups like XR, uh, the kind of prefigurative and regenerative actions that XR has undertaken. And what I want to see, and this is what the transformative adaptation uh, approach is calling for, um, is that kind of prefigurative and regenerative consciousness uh, and the tools of nonviolent direct action combined with the kind of thing that the Transition Towns movement has been calling for and doing for years to make um, a reality on the ground in to some extent a, a, a bottom up and to some extent a sort of locally top down way will probably involve, you know, working with local councils, et cetera, the kind of stuff that we need. So that, that's my answer. Let's, let's make the, the, the middle level, the level at which the, this really works. And that might just be enough. Hmm. Well, fingers crossed. Um, so why did, like, was there a moment that, that, that um, sort of triggered and, and made, you, made you decide to start writing this book? And, and why, did you, why did you decide to, to kind of focus it on, on our children? Um, like, why, why did you choose to make that the focal point? Yeah, yeah. So as I mentioned, the This Civilization is Finished book, um, that so started taking shape in my mind in 2017, and uh, it actually appeared in 2019. This parents' book has had a far longer genesis and a far slower um, um, pregnancy or whatever, if you will. Um, gestation. Some of the, yeah, gestation, that's, that's the word. Um, uh, some of it has been, uh, uh, it started, some of the key elements of it started taking shape for me uh, 10 or more uh, years ago um, through my philosophical work uh, and through uh, and it's, it's among other things, it's a sort of work of popular philosophy. I hope it's very, very accessible, that it includes philosophical and logical thinking, which a lot of people, I think, might find quite interesting and, uh, and compelling. Um, um, it, the germ of it was in an incredibly uh, simple idea, which I had. And I thought, oh, this is just revolutionary. Why, why, is, why isn't this idea out there more? And the idea is this. That a lot of people say, oh, well, look, I'm not really interested in, in the environment. You know, what I care about is, uh, is my family and my children. Um, and I thought, hang on a minute, isn't it in our enlightened self-interest to look after our ecosystems, to look after nature, because they are what our children and their children and so forth are going to depend upon. Um, and I started thinking this through fairly uh, rigorously. And I thought, and yeah, look, if you actually love your children, you can't just love your children. You, you have to be 
helping to facilitate a world in which they are going to be able to express the same love for their children. And that goes on forever, right? That principle goes on forever. It iterates, as we say, in philosophy or in maths. Um, so just loving your own children has to be enough to motivate a love that goes down the generations. Now, in the past, it was possible to express your love for your own children by doing things like, you know, making sure they were healthy and well-fed, getting them into a nice school, maybe, or, or, or whatever. But that's no longer enough, because as I said a few minutes ago, we can't outsource this any longer. The governments, the politicians are not riding to the rescue. The COP later this year, the climate COP is going to fail us. They may come up with an agreement, but there's absolutely no way in heaven that it will be uh, enough. So we can't outsource this any longer. A key burden of, of my book is to, is to say to parents and to aunts and uncles and grandparents and all caregivers and so on, that's pretty much all of us, is to say, look, you've been sort of hoping that, that somehow or other this was going to get sorted out, but it's not. Mm -hmm. um, it's only going to get sorted out if we do the, the bottom-up stuff and the top-down stuff and the middle-level stuff, especially, and if we get really serious about it and really soon, and we can talk more maybe about the, the, the nature of the urgency of it uh, in a minute. Um, and, and that's really what the book uh, argues. So the book takes you from the fact that you love your own children to your obligation, not just to look after them in a narrow way, but to contribute to creating a world in which it will be possible for their children and their children uh, to flourish. The only way that happens is if we do it together and do it strongly, more with more seriousness than we've ever had before, uh, and if we do it uh, quick. Uh, and that's the argument that I developed in, in the book. But to come right back to your question of what motivated me to do it, um, there's also uh, an emotional um, element, which is also very present uh, in the book, um, which is that I've, I've been you know, struggling for, for years with, uh, with grief and with um, a fear and heartbreak about the, the state of what we're doing to the world and about the state of what this means to those who are nearest and dearest to us. And for me personally, seeing the uh, lives of my nieces and nephews, seeing them start to grow up and thinking, God, what is the world going to be like in 2100, you know, when they could still be uh, alive? And thinking, unless we sort our act out, it's going to be bloody awful, let alone for their, uh, for their children. So, yeah, it's, uh, it's, the book is an, it's an emotional journey as well as a, um, a logical journey. It's, uh, that's what it seeks to take the, the reader on. And that's, in a way, sort of recapitulates the journey that I myself have been on. Why, why do you believe that people don't, um, don't get the sense of urgency about the, about the climate crisis? Mm. Mm. Yeah. So this is, again, a, a vital question. Uh, and I think it's partly to do with the nature of the crisis, right? It's very, very slow burning. Um, so you look at the, the COVID pandemic. Um, the climate crisis is kind of very like that. Uh, it's just massively speeded up. Um, uh, uh, I.e. COVID is a massively speeded up version of the, of the, climate, uh, uh, the climate crisis. Um, so we could see it happening with COVID. Right? We could see it happening as it were in real time. And you could see what was happening in China after they started to acknowledge that it was happening. We could see what was happening uh, in Italy. 
it's far harder to notice the same kind of stuff happening with uh, with uh, climate um, because the the timescales are so vastly vastly uh, slower. And human beings are not good at seeing stuff and acting on stuff that changes slowly. So the the whole thing is. Um, really difficult to handle. And that's leaving aside the huge vested interest in it, which have meant, for example, as you know, that there's been this massive, massive uh, climate denialism, um, which has uh, held us back for quite a long time. And of course, it's been very well funded by people who are who standard to benefit from the, uh, from the delays, from the prevarication. So there's a number of different ways uh, in which there's been a lack of uh, enough sense of, uh, of urgency. Um, and the urgency is incredibly real. Let me put it to you um, in this way. Um, we've got this crucial climate COP this year that was delayed from last year. Uh, and that is the one that is supposed to kind of put the seal on moving forward from the Paris uh, Climate Agreement. But even more important than that, what's gonna start happening in a significant way this year, almost certainly, um, is the post-COVID reset, right? The vaccines are coming on stream, okay? There's all sorts of problems, partly because we've got these new variants which have predictably emerged uh, in countries which have got very high levels of infection. You know, yet another reason why it was crazy for countries like the UK and the US to not protect themselves better uh, against COVID. You know, it's very striking that all the variants are coming from countries which have had lots of infection, you know, not obviously from countries like New Zealand and Taiwan and Vietnam and so on, which intelligently protected themselves against uh, the virus. But look, the vaccines are coming. There's going to be quite a lot of sort of getting through the, the virus uh, this year. We don't know how complete it's going to be, but it's very likely that there is going to be some kind of so-called economic uh, recovery, some kind of attempt to return to business as usual, some kind of attempt, attempt to return to normal. Um, and, you know, if we return to normal, um, then it's game over. That's it. Um, normal is what was uh, killing us slowly with uh, climate and medically with uh, COVID. Normal, if we return to it, also will produce more pandemics. Um, it's very clear that these, uh, we know that COVID came from animal cruelty, it came from ecosystem destruction, it was probably probabilified, uh, the latest research is showing by a uh, uh, climate breakdown, um, and of course it was spread around the world by out of control um, air travel, just like that, you know, spread far faster than the Spanish flu of a century ago, um, because it went at the speed of jet planes. Um, if we return to normal, we're guaranteeing more future pandemics, including maybe much worse uh, ones. So we need a transformed normal, and that has to start now. And it has to start now because now is the time when we're starting to reset from this COVID pandemic. And the, the institutions that are rebuilt now and the infrastructure that is built uh, uh, now and the money that is spent now, none of that can be done over again. What happens in the next 12 months is going to set the path for our species for the next 10 years. And what happens in the next 10 years, we know from the UN, from climate scientists, is going to determine the path for the entire century. So this time it really is a case that this is an absolutely crucial year that we are moving into. Um, so the urgency couldn't be more stark. And what I talk about in Parents for a Future in the book is the way that there is now 
nothing more urgent than to think in a truly long-term way. There's nothing more urgent than to, than to change our systems, to produce a transformed normal um, in a way that we can guarantee a decent future for our children uh, and grandchildren and, and great-grandchildren. And that is the urgency of the situation. It is incredibly clear if anyone's watching this thinking, oh, well, you know, maybe we can start thinking about this once we've really got through the COVID pandemic. By then, it would be too late. Mm. I mean, I just, uh, you, you reminded me of a fantastic quote from Brené Brown. Um, it says, we will not go back to normal. Normal never was. Our pre-corona existence was not normal other than we normalized greed, inequity, exhaustion, depletion, extraction, disconnection, confusion, rage, hoarding, hate, and lack. We should not, we should not long to return, my friends. We are, be given, we are being given the opportunity to stitch a new garment, one that fits all of humanity and nature. I really love that quote. Yes, um, very nice. But do you think that the pandemic um, has kind of, has changed our, our way of thinking? Because... I've been kind of working on this thesis that like the reason that it was so hard to shake ourselves out of, of what had become normal was because it was essentially relentless, especially with like the 24 hour news cycle and like constantly just living in the moment of like social media with Twitter and whatever on your screen. And I kind of feel like like the, the the lockdown, maybe more so than the pandemic. Actually, the lockdowns plural have 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 kind of like given us this like I don't know chance to take a breath and like yeah. reflect on on, yeah. on what we want to keep and what yeah. the, the best parts of our modern society are and and what we want to to reform and change like do you, do you think that that's realistic that that we we have got this this sort of pause and like br like deep breath for air or absolutely absolutely i couldn't agree more i think you put it really well there and i think an awful lot of people have uh, have felt that uh, this latest lockdown of course has been hard the weather's been bad it's winter people are people are tired people are lonely but even now you've got some 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 good threads emerging from the dire situation. So like, uh, I'm speaking to you from my home here in Norwich, and right now we're shrouded in snow. Uh, and people have been hugely enjoying time that many of them wouldn't have had otherwise um, in the local parks and so forth, building. I've seen the most amazing uh, snowmen during this <laughs> period. I've never seen such snowmen before, I swear to you. We've got this huge snow bunny um, very close to me. We've got this amazing, incredibly accurate snow bear. Uh, and I'm just scr scratching the surface here. You know, um, this is, I'm keeping it, it, it light here, but the point that you're making is a very, very serious one. You know, these things matter. Spending time in nature matters. Being able to hear the birds sing uh, matters. Having more leisure time matters. I mean, we should have more leisure time in our society. It's crazy that so many people work five days, six days a week or two or three jobs. Uh, this is not necessary. This is not a sane way to live. This is not how our ancestors used to live. The working week should be reduced to to four days a week or something like that as a as a standard, uh, and that could be done. And we're seeing now that it could be done if the work were were shared out better. Commuting, you know, most commuting should be a thing of the past. People can work from home. That's been shown during the pandemic. Many people who didn't realize they could can work from uh, home. And these long commutes, they're completely unsustainable. There, there's no way that you can make them. Um, compatible 
with um, a climatically um, sane uh, and non-climatically destroyed uh, future. Um, so we need to be reining back uh, travel, especially long distance travel, especially um, air travel. You know, there were, there were people who before this pandemic were commuting to work by air. I mean, can you think of anything more completely unbelievably insane. I'm sure you can actually. I mean, there's, there's innumerable insane things in our world, but a light's been shone on some of them by the, by the pandemic. And there must be no going back. There must be no going back to how it was before. Like I say, we need to transform normal. And one of the exciting things about this horrendous experience that we're going through is it does provide us with the opportunity to make some of those changes. And some of them are being made, uh, but more of them need to be made. One of the crucial things that people can do and, and, and should do, and I hope are doing, is think now and, and work now with your employees or employers or fellow workers, um, how you can reform your working practices to be not just more um, um, pandemic safe uh, and not just better from a human point of view, but better from the point of view of climate and nature because if we don't get that right in the long term that's going to be the one that's going to going to bite us like one of one of the things that always um continues to confuse me actually and perhaps it's going to change now is the fact that the and i read about it in oh, oh what was the book called oh that's going to drive me insane oh, it'll come back to me um <laughs> It's um, the uninhabitable earth. Oh, yes. Yeah. So in the, in the uninhabitable earth, I, I was reading about the, the financial burden of, of like the, the, the changes it, and the sort of temperature increases and uh, ecosystem destructions that have already taken place. And honestly, when the when the when the you know the the argument is raised about you know oh we can't make this fast to transition to like a post like fossil fuel economy because yeah. it costs too much, I like I, I've I've always been baffled as why like the, the the argument is not just immediately thrown back in their face, being like well you know this the the amount of like uh, just this amount of warming that we've had thus far is 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 going to cost like extreme like magnitudes more than than what it would cost to 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 change yeah. our economy yeah. um like and i always thought that that argument held no weight already like do you think we're going to continue to see people make that argument after after we've had um covid and where we've just kind of shown that if a government wants to they can they can print as much money as they decide is necessary um yeah. like, do you, do you think we're still going to see those kind of arguments? Well, we might do, but they're a lot less credible now, aren't they? I agree with, once again, with uh, what you said there. Um, there was a lot of talk around the time of the last election in the UK about is there a magic money tree or not? And the Conservatives were um, pouring scorn on Labour for allegedly thinking that there was. Well, it turns out that the Conservatives found the magic money tree when, uh, when they really needed uh, to. So, yeah, it's no longer credible for governments to say, oh, we don't have the money to do the things we'd like to do for climate and nature and so on. Uh, it's no longer credible. It has to be uh, done. Uh, and um, yeah, you know, I hope in my small way, I'm contributing to making it possible for, for that to be done. I'm, I'm proud to say that David Wallace Wells, the author of The Uninhabitable Earth, did an endorsement for Parents for a Future, um, a very, very strong uh, endorsement. And, and uh, and he evidently thinks this could be part of the, the, the recipe uh, for what we now need.
because yeah part of what's implicit in my book is a, a strong call for us to do what is necessary which is what Churchill famously said you know he said it's not enough to to try your best sometimes you have to do enough you have to go beyond what you what you think you're capable of um and if we were really going to to pull out all the stops to take care of our children and make it possible for them to take care of, of their children. This is what we would do. We would devote the, the mother of all spending programs and reorientation of budgetary resources and so on. We would make sure that the post-COVID reset really was thoroughly green. And at the moment, I've got to tell you, you know, the signs are that, that it, it's not looking that good, especially in countries like this one like the enormous road building program that they've got uh, planned here in the UK. Um, this is precisely the wrong direction to be traveling in, if you see what I mean. Um, so th there is a, a huge and vital and urgent job of work uh, to be done here. And yeah, governments no longer have credibility if they try to say they can't find the money. Mm. John Barry, actually, a professor who, who was my, my favorite professor at university, who taught me uh, the class, The Politics of Sustainable Development. I mm. did a colleague of mine in uh, Greenhouse. Oh, really? Okay. I, I, loved, I love him. Um, but anyway, he, he, he hilariously pointed out to me uh, that the uh, magic money tree is uh, also, and the, the, it's uh, MMT is also modern monetary theory. Which is, mm. uh, <laughs> um, <Really>? yeah, <laughs> just maybe chuckle. Um, yeah. So, like, say someone's listening to this and thinking, okay, aside from from going and and perhaps buying buying your book, um, what could they do to get to to get involved to like make some sort of difference in in community building in their local area, or mm. or where would you suggest that people start? Yeah, yeah. So there are so many things that people can do, and obviously. Uh, my book is just one thread in that. Um, uh, if you're interested in, in finding out more about the book, do go to the website www.parentsforafuture.org. So what I, what I say in the book is, look, let's think about this in terms of sort of different levels of commitment. As a, kind of, as a first level of commitment, we might posit um, all the sort of basic things that people have been trying to do for years, so things like um, changing your own individual uh, life and getting a, um, a, a green electricity plan, um, uh, voting intelligently, lobbying your MP, uh, all those kinds of things, right? Uh, the, but but we, we know those things are not gonna be enough. We know they're necessary, but we know they're not gonna be enough. The second level I would posit is, what can you do through your workplace? Because people have enormous power typically through their, through their work. They don't always realize uh, that, but I think some people are starting to realize that a bit now through seeing the kind of changes that COVID is, uh, is, is bringing about. So, you know, can you get your company or whatever to go uh, carbon neutral? Um, can you um, drastically uh, contribute, can, can you contribute to drastically reducing the amount of commuting um, that takes place through your workplace? Those kinds of things. Um, the third level, one level beyond that, is um, a little bit more uh, spiky and full on, but it's the kind of thing that we're going to need to do um, if we're going to uh, do enough. And that is to be ready to also use um, your uh, workplace creatively as a place for jumping off from, for doing the kind of community level, national, whatever it is, uh, action uh, that is required 
to, um, to adequately address these emergencies, these chronic long-term emergencies that we're in. The climate emergency is gonna define the lifetime of all of us. Um, so I'm talking about going on strike. I'm talking about doing things like um, going on uh, climate protests or whatever it is during work time. Um, if you've got uh, employers, whatever, who are sympathetic, I think a really great thing to do would be to say to them, look, can I have your permission um, on, uh, on the, uh, the time that you're employing me with to go off and um, join this demonstration or um, try to help stop HS2 or create this, help create this eco-village or whatever it is. Um, and if you've got uh, an employer who is less cooperative, then, then you may have to consider the, the, the strike option. What I'm really thinking there with this third level is, is I'm thinking, look, the kids have done it, right? The, the, the school climate strikes have been an inspiration to us all over the past uh, few years. Mm. Um, and my friend and colleague Greta Thunberg has contributed in that way to nothing, nothing less than changing the world, at least at the level of discourse and consciousness. Now we've got to make those changes into reality. It's adults who've got to do that, right? Um, so if the kids can go on strike, well, why can't we? Right. Let's have some some designated uh, dates uh, when we come together as we emerge from from COVID. Not right now, not you know, not like while we're on lockdown or whatever. But as we emerge from COVID and as there's the the chance to decide how we come back from COVID, let's have some dates where a load of us go on strike together to say, you know, it's not okay to just leave it to the to the children. Uh, we need to take responsibility here. We need to step up. We are the ones with more of the power than they have. And then the fourth and final level is the level that XR have uh, made so influential, which is the level of, of significant scale um, civil disobedience, nonviolent direct action. And we definitely need that. But what I'm doing when I posit these sort of four levels is I'm saying, you know, find the level at which you are comfortable. If all you can do is the first level, okay, well, that's a start, but you do need to go further at some point. The second level, if a, if a lot of people do that, it would make a huge, huge difference. Still almost certainly wouldn't be enough, but it would be you know, getting closer. The third level, that's really in many ways what my book is about. Um, how can we find um, mechanisms like, uh, like strikes that bring us together uh, as adults in the way that the children have, uh, have come together? And, and raise consciousness a lot further and put pressure on local authorities, put pressure on governments, et cetera, um, and, um, yeah, and, and contribute to, to changing the world in the kind of way that Greta's initiated. And then the fourth level, that's going to be needed too, definitely, uh, and at larger scale than it has been so far, uh, much bigger than, than XR has managed to do. But if people are not ready to go to the fourth level, you know, that's, that's fine. Find, find the level at which you're comfortable and the level at which you can make the best contribution uh, that you can make. Well, that seems like a, a beautiful place on, on which to end things. Uh, everybody go order uh, Rupert's book. <laughs> I have mine in the post. I'm sure it might oh, take a while. Yeah, yeah, well, it, it probably takes a while. The post takes a little bit longer yeah, than usual these days. The post, yeah. But it's an e-book, of course, if people want it instantly, and that's even cheaper. Mm, that's a good point. But I do love having, I mean, it's really ironic uh, that I love my books, uh, given that they're printed on. I, I, it'd be great if, if, it, if there was some publisher who did like hemp paper, 
or re- like all mm. recycled paper. Because I'm pretty sure that uh, Naomi Klein's this changes everything. Like it was specifically paint, uh, printed on recycled paper. I'd love if yeah. there was a publisher it's that nothing, did that. There are not many books, unfortunately, yet that are printed on recycled paper. But it, it, it is it's another thing to press for. It is starting to come in now. Mm. Well, way. anyway, order the book or the yeah. ebook. And um, yeah, Rupert, thanks very much, man. It was it was a pleasure. Thank you, Josh. Thanks, everyone. Thanks so much for listening. If you haven't already and you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to this podcast and to our mailing list. And don't forget, my book, Brexit, The Establishment Civil War, is now available for pre-order on Amazon. You'll find the link in the description below. Until next time, thanks so much for listening.